Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Today's episode is with Emery Beatty, someone who I was lucky enough to meet, gosh, two years ago, I think, about. It It was like during the pandemic, so yeah probably because I was walking my dog on my old apartment complex and this voice yells out of the pool oh my gosh your dog is so cute can I pet your dog and I said yes Daisy loves people of course you can pet her I think Charlie was with you too Charlie was Um, with me the it was and then your roommate your your neighbors that were my friends oh yes and so um, they were so sweet and, you know, petting Daisy literally from the pool. Yeah. I was like, I was, I was still deeply submerged in the pool. Yeah. And I was sticking my arm over the edge to pet you. Yeah. Dog. And then they go, we have a dog too. That kind of looks like this. And so that was when we discovered that Emery has like the scrappy version of Daisy. It's like rags to riches. It's like Cassie is the before shot and yeah. Daisy's the after. And Cassie is very protective and doesn't particularly like me in particular like if I look in her eyes Cassie is like I will kill you I will kill you but so Emery's my direct like next door neighbor was Emery's friend and then oh it well it must have been September because then two weeks later we hop on zoom and I'm like wait that's the person that I met in the pool that like had the dog like Daisy that's like friends with my neighbor and so I think we messaged each other via zoom and we were like um did we meet the other day And I remember I messaged you also because Kieran emailed me saying your dog looks a lot like Gabby's dog. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I didn't even know that. <laughs> because um, we had been submitting like for for that like peer mentor TA position. She had us uh, email little pictures of ourselves and like little bio descriptions. Yeah. And I sent a picture of me with Cassie because uh, she's really cute and I like to show her off. Mm-hmm. And Kieran messaged me back saying your dog looks just like Abby's dog. And I was like, I met that person. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty cool that we didn't even mention that we were the same major, let alone that we were like literally not even the same major, like interested in almost exactly the same things. We just met through the dogs and that's, that was pretty cool. But, and also I should say when I describe Cassie as scrappy, she's very adorable. She just has like her fur compared to Daisy. is just like, it's so much like thinner that they look like, like we said, like rags to riches, but they're, but Cassie is so adorable in her own right like please don't take no one take this the wrong way and when I post Emery's (laughs) podcast I'll put a picture of Cassie up too good because she's very cute but she's also very cute in like a possum kind of way and I love opossums but she's definitely has the sort of rat the rat look a little bit yeah (laughs) and the protective rat nature rats are famously protective yeah So I wanted to start before we kind of dive into your anthropology career, something that Emery and I've worked together on is like grad school applications and we've done a lot of edits for each other. And I um, mentioned to them that the, oh gosh, I don't even, the UCB, yes, UCB mycology lab, mycology lab in forestry. And I've seen this on your CV. So I kind of want to hear like how the heck this opportunity came up at UCB because you're still in high school. So, um, yeah, let's just, I'm going to give you full reign on this one. Yeah. So it was part of a program I did at, in my high school called EDSET, which stands for English Design Environment Science Environmental <laughs> Technology. Uh, it's a, got an acronym. And um, so basically the program was for like science inclined smart students um and you had to apply and like use like baby's first college applications because we did it we did it our sophomore year so it's like baby's first college applications this is the first thing I like really ever applied to and um one of the benefits of it was we got to um get our Fridays off of school we were allowed to be released into the world 
and we would go to internships. So it was like um, basically, you know, uh, a career building opportunity to like get real world experience and to like go into something um, that interested you. And I knew at the time that I wanted to do anthropology. Um, like I, I was very interested in anthropology. I've always been really interested in anthropology, like from since I was very young. Um, so, uh, but I also, for some reason, was really drawn in by the idea plants and, and plant diseases because the person who came to our class to kind of give us a little talk on like we were in the program and we were all like okay come to an informational meeting and somebody came and gave a talk about how she found her internship and how she found her internship was somebody from the program the year she entered it was leaving and so she got it from her and so she was like and I'm leaving this year so if anybody wants it email me and I was like the way you described that just sounded very interesting. And I can't even remember what she said, but I was very interested. Um, and so I emailed her and there were a few other people who were interested, but I think I was, I, I, I like to think that maybe I was selected because I had just had the best resume as the best resume a sophomore could possibly have. But I really think it was just that I was the only one who showed up to the interview. Oh. <laughs> Cause I remember being CC'd on like, like a few different students and it felt a little competitive um for a, just like just a hair of a moment because it was like all three of you like we can only take one of you but three of you were interested but I I showed up to the interview and it was baby's first interview and I was like I got all dressed up and then they just brought me into the lab and said hey what do you think of our lab and I was like it's really cool are we gonna like sit down and do a formal interview and they said no nah, you're cool come in next Friday and I was like okay that um, reminds me of, and I don't think she'll mind me telling the story of when Nikki Torno, her first day in Montecito excavating, came in like boots with a purse and like jeans and like an outfit. <laughs> like an outfit. And it was like, no, you're going to start digging today. Like there's no intro. Like you start digging now. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I had like a very like, um, because my parents like had prepped me for like how to do an interview. And so I had my resume with me, like on resume paper. Um, and I had like, I dressed up like, like business casual, like somewhere between business casual and business formal. Like it definitely was not casual wear, but I was like, not super fancy. Cause I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, and I was like, I was like, had my little folder with my resume in it and I was all ready. And they were like, Hey, so here is our, uh, our centrifuge and here is our electrophoresis station. What do you think? You interested? And I said, it looks great. You want to ask me about what my strengths and weaknesses are? And they were just like, I'll see you later. Um, and that was my experience. There was not a lot of plants involved. Um, a lot of like, not like where I was, was in the lab. So by the time they was into the lab, it was not very planty. Um, although I did spend like a good two months at one point hammering bark into dust. Um, that was, that was hard on the wrists. I can imagine. Yeah, but we just basically would um, process plant samples and try and see like sort of what diseases were in these plants and diagnose them with um, different different fungal infections, which uh, is very, the, the state of California is very interested and is very concerned about the infections that are occurring in plants. So we had a lot of um, sort of state we had a lot of state supervision um and a lot of like state representatives calling us and being like have you gotten that sample ready yet we need to know is the plant sick um and our, our biggest project yeah our biggest project was uh every year we processed uh we did a citizen science thing where we would um the head of the lab would go to like a bunch of meetings all the way up and down the coast of california and would like send out these little packets to like anyone who would show up to these meetings. And um, basically we were tracking this, the spread of sudden oak death, SOD, um, which is a, uh, a really devastating, um, a really, really devastating disease that is affecting oaks in California. And it's killing like, it's, it's obliterating our oaks in the state. Like it is, I think he said it was like, if, if it was on the scale of human genocide, it'd be worse than anything in human history. Like it is, it is totally obliterating them. And it's like working its way both up the coast and down the coast. And it hasn't reached 
it's 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 above slow a little bit okay. it's like working its way down it only goes a few meters a year it's not very mobile but um people would set, would basically send us we would teach them what infected leaves look like and they would send us samples and then we would test them and in like one summer that's all we would do for like a whole summer and I would like spend you know like seven hours a day just processing these samples and I I did over like 2,000 DNA extractions in one summer and like I spent hours and hours like hole punching because we'd hole punch the leaves to get the samples out of them um, and we would we would track the spread and we uh, input it all into a GPS um, map so if you you can go to the app store and download a thing it's like sod blitz something or other and you can see where the infected trees are near you oh that's awesome it's like tree forensics before you move on to anthropology forensics it's tree forensics essentially yeah really cool though I'm actually glad I asked you about that because like I said it's kind of something that I've just like seen you mention a couple times and been like hmm I wonder what that was like do you think it kind of primed you to have a more like biological lens in anthropology or were you always interested in that side because you know I know when I came in, I wasn't very, like, I was very archaeo-focused and the biological stuff kind of, like, crept up on me. How was it for you? I think I was, I was always interested in biological. Like, my, the first thing I wanted to be when I was, like, in middle school, I wanted to be a genetic, an evolutionary geneticist, which is, I didn't even, I barely know what that is now, let alone when I was in middle school. Well, it's because I specifically watched a documentary that was about evolutionary genetics of like Neanderthals. And I was like, that, I wanna do that. Um, <laughs> so I was always very interested in, in the biological, also cause my dad's like a chemist and a scientist and uh, I wanted lab experience. Cause I want, I knew that working in a lab would take me like, that would get me like good skills that would take me far. And I like, I do like to harp on my lab skills. I do like to be like, I worked in a lab. Yeah, no, it's important. <laughs> It's important for sure. I mean, I think we learned, we learned that in the pandemic, like being able to do just as strong work in the lab as in the field when, you know, when we can't go in the field, um, is clearly very important. I also think I'm a bit of like, uh, like to sit and do like a focused activity. Mm. So doing like little data analysis or like doing a little protocol. I, I really enjoy that. Um, and in the field, I say one of my favorite things to do in the field was just to sit in my corner, my patch of dirt, and just like brush it until there was no more dirt and it was just hard packed. Or like to sit and like etch around a stone. That was my favorite. Um, interesting. I can't say I felt the same. <laughs> I can't say I felt the same way. But um, and we'll, we can get to this. But I was working with like commingled graves, and there was Roman cement on top of them, so it was literally like. Well, because of course you don't want to damage the bone. That's like the first thing that they no, tell that's you. Like, like you don't damage the bone. Like you can do anything else, but like, you have to be so careful, like not to damage the bone. And you're literally trying to pick rock away from it while not damaging the bone, but hitting hard enough that you can actually get the rock away. I have a great, very funny story about somebody, not me. I want to be so clear. This was not me. And I'm emphasizing it so much to the point. It sounds like it was me. It was not me. Okay. I believe it you. Was- this guy in our program. So um, when we excavated, there was like the the famous like um, you know that all the dirt and rocks and ash that fell. Yeah. That is like the reason it's so well preserved. It's called La Pili, and it's basically like just teeny tiny puma stones, like that big. Oh, this is a audio medium. It, they're about the size of um, about the size of a pea, of like a, a pea, you know, like a like a green bean pea. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, we had like the body, the very exciting body, the skeleton that we found in, in a tomb. So he was like safe and protected, but we did find some human remains sort of mingled in, um, in this Lapili, which is where most of the famous like Pompeii bodies have been found is in this layer. Um, and it makes sense that like they were found because, um, the the place we were excavating the the necropolis is right at one of the exits to Pompeii so like yeah, they were that's where people like running out that's where people were when they were running out so we found like some scattered human remains I found I found some it was very exciting um but we were this one guy was digging with a pickaxe and he got so excited because he was the only non-archaeologist out of uh-huh. all of us 
and he got so excited because he found a vertebra and he was like I can see your face is so pain because you know where this is going vertebra are so delicate too yeah and he got so excited because he was like everyone else had been finding bones like people were finding teeth people were finding like um they were finding like I found a clavicle somebody found pieces of a jaw we found a maxilla we found like some really cool stuff and he was excited because he was finally about to find a bone and he he went to like dig around it and he tapped it with like the little mini pickaxes that you have and he said it just dissolved in dust and he was like whoop and then just put it in a bucket. <laughs> yeah, that happens. It, I mean, particularly, like, I guess we should clarify that Emery excavated at the site of Pompeii. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know, Pompeii was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius erupting. And in the, like 97? no 79 AD 79 AD there's like I have Erickson like drilled that into my brain 79 AD pyroclastic blast and ash trapped these bodies that we're talking about in like what we're saying like while they're trying to exit because we know that and I learned that in class but also I think the destruction of Pompeii happened like instantly pretty much like it was just all all of a sudden they like had to leave and like people were dying and just like everyone was dying (laughs) it was it was there was like a little bit of warning but like what well, we were taught um, in this program was that like people like uh, there was like some notice that, like something was going wrong and people mostly just kind of ignored it because mm-hmm. they were like eh, something weird's happening but like why would I run from my home yeah. and that by the time anyone realized oh this is really bad it was like already way too late yeah way too late um, and like that's what happened at Herculano, Herculaneum, which is like a sister city to Pompeii. Mm-hmm. Is like everyone was like waiting at the ports, yeah. and they were all killed in like like One, just a second. Two. Yeah, because this pyroclastic wave of just like superheated air and gas just like killed them all in like a mi- like a second. Yeah, so it's really cool. I hope I really wanted to visit Pompeii. I was signed up for a. Uh, what's it called study abroad and then the pandemic happened but it's okay um (laughs) the pandemic that ruins everything um yeah so before we like dive really like into the details of like that field school um I want to talk about you know starting at UCSB and kind of the really exciting time that or I know it was exciting for me of like finally getting to take amp classes and finally getting to really test out your passion what, what did that feel like and how were your first couple of years because I didn't know you during that time so uh I was so excited to take anth classes all I wanted to do was to take anthropology classes it was like I was like why do I have to take non-anthropology <laughs> classes what what is this I have to gen gen eds no way just yeah. anthropology um and so I just piled on as many anthropology classes as I possibly could so it's kind of looking at how many anth classes I took it's kind of like stupid (laughs) stupid how many I've taken um because like from like my first quarter I was taking like two a quarter it was like it was crazy um and I I was just so like I felt like my brain was on fire because I like loved going I'm such a nerd I loved going to classes and this is like I think what's gonna be very helpful in carrying me through like a PhD is the fact that I do love learning and I love studying um and I have really, really enjoyed all of my anthropology classes. I don't think I've ever had an anthropology class that I didn't like really, really enjoy. And I didn't find something like deeply fascinating about. <coughs> Can't relate. <laughs> e, the T. I loved it. And it really does feel like I'm pursuing like a passion of mine. Um, and this was something apparently not everyone feels about their studies. I thought it was so weird. I had friends who were like, I'm changing my major. I can't do this anymore. And I'm like, but do you not love what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely understand that. I remember going through the ant catalog for the first time and just like sitting in my room, like being so excited about the classes. And I was like, anthropology of Japan. I want to take that. That sounds so cool. And my, my bio roommate is just sitting there looking at me like, you want to take that? I was like, you don't? <laughs> you don't want to take I was like, I that know. sounds so interesting to me. Like, I love that. Like, I would kill to be in that class. I still haven't gotten to take it. I probably won't because I don't know if it's going to be offered again. Um, 
because it was offered last quarter, but it like was at the exact same time as another class I had to take anyway. No one cares about that. That's boring. But um, yeah, no, it does. I feel the exact same way. Or people like one of my other bio friends, he's like, yeah, I'm definitely going to like do some non-bio stuff after I graduate because I just like don't love it anymore. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so wild. I get, you couldn't <laughs> pay me to like give up anthropology. If you yeah, I to, love like, it. Drop it. No. I also think we get, I think we're lucky because I think uh, anthropology offers a lot more flexibility than like a bio major does because bio majors are like, their whole shit is like scheduled out. Can we curse on this? Yeah, you can curse on this. I don't care. Um, (laughs) It's all scheduled out for like all four years, like exactly what they need to take every single year scheduled out. And as anthropology majors, we kind of had like this delectable charcuterie board of interesting classes. And we're like, I think I will take this class and I will take this class and I will enjoy them. Whereas bio majors are like, I have to take OCHEM in the next 20 minutes or I die. Excellent point. But even like but it's also like, well, if you don't want to take OCHEM, you shouldn't have put yourself in the position to take OCHEM. I don't know. That's how I feel. I don't think there are any bio majors listening to this, but I feel like someone out there is like, I have to do it for what I want. Like how I know like Noah at one point, Noah Hayes, who's been on the podcast, wanted to be a physical therapist. So he was taking some of the like chem requirements for that. And then now he's like, yeah, now he's like straight on anthropology track. And he's like, why did I take those classes? I have watched four people fail out of ochem and i mean like take ochem fail it Mm -hmm. take ochem again and fail it again and then say i'm done yeah yeah that's something i'm just so glad i never had to experience and i i wonder because some people say i've had people tell me that the anthropology degree is like a very easy degree and i think there's it's okay anthropology is definitely easier than like a bio degree but I also wonder to what extent it's easy and to what extent it's just very enjoyable like yeah. is it is it truly like a much easier major to uh, than other majors or is it just a f- do I just like love writing uh like anthropology papers I think it's a bit of both. Like I've had I've been saying for a while now that just the quantity of work that the bio and chem students have to do, like they 100% deserve like a gold star on their diploma. It's, like they deserve an extra seal or something that says they, you know, completed this many hours of like lab work or whatever. Things that are just above and beyond what we do, but I don't think what we do is inherently easier. I just think it's like a different, just a whole different ball of wax. I agree. I definitely think we do less work than bio and chem majors, but that's not our fault. That's because our school has set it up in a very stupid way that makes them do so much more work than they need to. <laughs> yeah. Um, I agree. Cause I've, I've definitely known people who like, if I have to write a paper, I'll die. Who are like, they're like, I, I, I will take a, a standardized test yeah, any day of the week. Time. But if you m- try and make me write a paper on bones, I will, I will, I will kill the professor. Yeah. Something that we can't relate to at all. So <laughs> I've never wanted to kill a professor about making you write a paper on bones. Yeah. So in like during the pandemic times, 2020, I guess, it just seems weird that it's almost 2022. Like I keep thinking that it's still like just barely it's still, 2021. It's still March, 2020. Uh, yeah, no, it really is. Um, is when I believe that you know you started becoming involved in like the current lab and working on projects there like I know you did a big casting project and casted a lot of those um hominin skulls that we got we got like a big grant to refurbish the uh, human evolution collection and Emery was a part of also casting so we could have multiples was that the main intent yeah it was uh just to expand the teaching collection because like it's it's the more people you can get hands on bones and I'm sure everyone who's tried to learn osteology in the pandemic can attest that like it's not the same as getting your hands on the bones yeah and the idea of getting to hold replicas of ancient hominid skulls or legs or whatever pelvis or osteococci I shouldn't say pelvises osteococci so unprofessional yeah (laughs) it's so rare like it's something I never thought I would get the chance to do because those fossils are so safe kept like three people have ever had the chance to actually like hold those fossils do you know what I mean so the idea that we get a hold replicas of them that are the same shape and size is actually really powerful for me and it's when you actually hold like like the other day I was holding like 
Aophroconus, so like the same species as Lucy, the, um, the Ossococci. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's so small. Like you can hear it. You can read it. You can see the dimensions, but when you hold it in your hand, you're like, wow, I really get it now. Um, UC Berkeley, I think had, I don't know if they were replicas or if they were her actual bones, but I know that they had like a, a tiny little Lucy display in one of the halls I would go down and they had these two little teeny tiny short like chunks of long bone wrapped up in dirt and then wrapped in like some sort of gauze um and I was like I would like sit there and stare at them and be like that's those are bones yeah um and also like I think that is something that I feel very deeply about and I'm very interested in I don't think it's what I'm going to study but like I feel so deeply connected to human evolution through anthropology and it makes me think about like humans through the ages and I I have this belief that I keep like have a reoccurring it comes up for me like we have always been essentially the same yeah as everyone who's come before so like seeing graffiti in like ancient cities or like you know like ancient art or ancient like musical instruments I'm like makes me almost want it gives me this like this like feeling rushes over me like we have always been the same and I feel so connected to all of all of like our ancestors stretching back into the ancestral path of like all the way back to Lucy all the way back to like I feel so connected and dare I say that like final sense of connection comes from the fact that we never feel any other connections to humans because you're either white black European African Asian um Democrat Republican you know what I mean like there are so many divisions in our world now that it is crazy well no it's not crazy but it is mind altering to think that we are literally all descended from the exact same things experiences uh environmental shifts everything and so it's so unique to finally be able to study the human race as a whole in human evolution anthropology rather than like I said all of those deviate all of those um labels and all of those individual categories yeah it definitely like I I I think we are so it's so ingrained in us to think about humans as different like it's so ingrained just in our day-to-day life and I definitely like see this in myself to think of myself as like somehow fundamentally different and I think it also comes from like American culture is so individualized to not only think of yourself different from like somebody from a different country but to think of yourself as different from a different like person sitting next to you Mm -hmm. you are so individualized and so when I see like ancient graffiti from like Vikings that says like you know I was like somebody just scratching like I was here into Mm -hmm. a brick and I I want to sit down and like cry and be like it gets I feel like I'm slapped in the face of like we're the same (laughs) like I'm the same to that Viking. Cause I, you know, in high school, like took a Sharpie to my school wall and be like, Emery was here, you know, like, like dumb kid things that you do. And like, I'm the same as that Viking. And I'm the same as that Roman that lived 2000 years ago. And I'm the same as that person across the street. Like it, it smacked me in the face that we were all essentially just the same stupid meat chunk through years of evolution that brought us to this place where we scratch, like I was here on, on bricks. Yeah, no, it's extremely cool. Going off that topic of being an individual, how has it felt for you being able to really identify at UCSB throughout your time as your true self and, you know, go you identify as non-binary and have people use, you know, your proper, proper pronouns? Because that's, that's all I've known you as and I'm so glad, you know, but I'm sure that that was a big transition in college, being able to have like that authority to be yourself. Yeah, it was, it was one of the things I was looking forward most to going to college about was that sort of new start because I hate coming out man to yeah. people I know like to people I don't know I'm like hi I'm non-binary what's up um but like 
family members it's such like a it's a painful and uncomfortable process and so I was like very excited to be able to go and be like nobody knows who I am but now they'll know who I who I am Mm -hmm. um and um and I was still too chicken to do it because when I first went to college I lived in um the rainbow house the the LGBTQ living community and we went around in a circle and we all said our pronouns and everyone was uh, a he, him, or she, her, except me and Charlie. And we both said we were she, they's. <laughs> and we were like- They weren't uh, fully ready to be <laughs> We weren't, we weren't ready. <laughs> um, and uh, it was very convenient that we were the two she, they's because we um, happened to be in a room together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we- it was, I, I don't know for Charlie, but I know for me that being able to be with another person who was non-binary was like kind of what I needed to be able to be like, this is an okay thing to be. And I remember we went uh, and sat down for breakfast one day because, you know, roommates, we went to go get breakfast in the dining hall and Charlie misgendered themselves. And I was like, and they looked up and they go do you ever just misgender yourself in your head and I went yes yes and that was like that was for me such a a like a watershed moment of like all right we're not binary this is this is a normal experience because I I didn't know anyone else who was non-binary like yeah. it was it was like I knew like some people in high school but like I was a freshman and they were a senior you know like unachievably high above me like so much cooler than me like they're living their life and I'm just too shy and not someone that you probably felt you'd go up to like ask a question to you know it's yeah it's hard to do that with someone you're close with let alone someone who's you know four years older than you exactly and Um, you know if they didn't figure it if if people didn't figure it out Charlie and Emery are still together and I think it's the cutest thing on planet earth that like they were roommates and they fell in love and yes yeah and they were roommates together we're just two dumb NB roommates who decided to start dating and are still together two and a half years later yeah very embarrassing but I can imagine that it just must be really cool for you to know that like all of your friends and lab mates here like know the version of you that you want them to know that is like I thought about that before recording I was like I've never known Emery as anyone other than Emery and that must be really powerful for them to know that that's how I want my whole life to be and like I refer to myself in the past tense as Emery and as they them even though obviously at one point in my life I wasn't um and um it's very exciting to be able to go forward as not having to pretend to be something I'm not. And that was something I was so scared of because I came out in college and I thought, well, this is going to be a fun four years. And then I'm going to go into a professional environment where we don't like where you can't like I had it in my head that you like couldn't be non-binary in a professional environment. Like I thought it was unprofessional to go by they them pronouns. Not which <laughs> I, I don't like that's just how deeply rooted like yeah. just transphobia is in our society that I thought like I was like well I can like college students can get away with it because like college students are supposed to be dumb and experimental um but I'm gonna have to leave that behind when I go to the adult world and I it's been like I've been thinking about that recently about how like like that's changed like I never have to look back I can keep going forward and I can I can be demand respect from people that may still be you know closed-minded which is stupid but also have you been in contact with Donovan Adams yet no I haven't I really want you to I just also like even if UCF isn't you know the place just I think he'd be a really good valuable resource for you as someone who you know is is openly non-binary in academia and is succeeding you know yeah we got to look out for each other you know Mm -hmm, for sure uh being envy is still a very rare thing yeah um it's so I think you know 
having you on as you know for representation even just like I'm thinking about like the people that might listen to this and like feel some sort of connection because this is so cool six percent of my audience members identify as non-binary and I don't those know are my those are my bros yeah and I don't know how my analytics knows that but it does and it says it so I'm going with it and I think that that's incredible and awesome six percent six percent is so high that makes me so happy because I I you know I grew up being told like people like show off these statistics that like oh you know like one percent of the population is trans and then like a minuscule percent of that is like non-binary and there are still a lot of people out there who don't believe being non-binary is like a thing and I'm I'm very thankful because I I don't know if this is true or not but I have this feeling that the anthropology sort of field is going to be more more like understanding of that because we study cultures where they have like long and historic third gender traditions or cultures that have multiple different third genders you know like who fourth and fifth genders like which is so special and I think is something that everyone who is trying to educate themselves on uh just gender and sex should look into because it helps contextualize what this is if you're not understanding the roots of someone you know someone identifying as a different gender it helps you understand that it is a long tradition and it is not something that is like made up because it's entirely not like there's you know anyway sorry i this is there was this there was this youtuber who was like being non-binary is only existed since 2014 that was the first time and i was like what are you talking about it's, yeah. like tell that to like the the like uh I don't know how to pronounce it but the the third gender tradition of the Mayans or mm-hmm. like the Hijra of India like tell that to like all it like tell that to native like and I love I yeah, love tell it, to, tell it to third spirit people also yeah exactly thought, two spirit sure. people and all, oh, all two, I think, yeah I think it's two spirit people I just tell it to like the there's I I I think that it's really just the the history of these things has been just erased due to colonialism Oh, just, yeah. An, just another thing colonialism has taken away from us, you know, well, not me specifically, because I'm a white person. So like, I shouldn't say taken away from us, but like taken away from the world at large. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I'm just so thankful too that on the podcast, I've like started it as a space that, I mean, I was never going to do anything different, but always, it's been a space since the beginning where we talk about all of these types of issues and talk about them honestly. And I'm really thankful for everyone's like vulnerability and sharing on the podcast. Like I, you know, I, you know, I appreciate you and I appreciate you sharing your story. It's really impactful. And I think the more we talk about it, the more normalized it becomes, the more, you know, the more we destigmatize it. Like we were saying, even just us saying that, non-binary isn't something that was started in 2014 maybe revolutionary for some people to hear which is I think you know it's it's crazy to think that some people don't understand that but you know knowledge is power so the more knowledge we can hopefully arm people with the better exactly and I think it, it goes back to like connections and to connecting with other people and it has a lot to do with like knowing about some and knowing their identity and I think I was thinking about this the other day um because I think about trans issues a lot because how can I not I'm kind of have to but like that I think a lot of people haven't really like met a trans person and had like a deep conversation with a trans person and I think it makes it easy almost to caricaturize us yeah and like (laughs) this is such a stupid thing but there's uh I, I love the show Survivor um, very good anthropologically, to be honest. <laughs> um, but I just like trash TV. And there's a really interesting um, sort of tribal counselor when they're trying to de- decide who to vote off the island. And one guy outs another person for being a trans man, mm. um, which, I mean, as a trans person, I knew already. Like, I was like, that person has top surgery scars. I can tell when someone's been on testosterone. Like, I, you know, like uh, voice training can do a lot, but you know, you can sometimes tell. Um, and somebody uh, talked about how it was really impactful for them to know somebody as a person before they knew them as a trans person. Um, and I just, I, I think again, like 
I, I often think of myself as different from other people as an individual. And I think helping to connect with somebody and then learning they have identity different from your own can have be one of those slap in the face moments of like, oh God, we're, we're the same at some level, even mm-hmm. though these things that superficially seem so different at the end of the day, like we have the same passions. Definitely. I always enjoy Charlie's button that says they, them. I'm always like, that's a, a nice nice little touch especially if you're like in in the general public not just with you know like friends or uh, yeah family you you'd think more people would be able to read buttons oh (laughs) as somebody who works at starbucks and wears a they them pin every single day the number of times people tell me thanks (laughs) ma'am is ridiculous how has it been working at starbucks because i think again i try to paint a picture of a whole person and here we have two working undergrads who also participate in research and are full-time students so emory's a boss for all the time <laughs> it's, it's a lot it's a lot uh, it's a lot and i always feel like i'm neglecting some part of it i feel like i'm always in a little over my head um like I haven't spent as much time in the lab as I've been wanting to. And I feel like I'm always holding out until like one thing ends, you know, like it's just wait until midterm season's over. And then, oh gosh, wait until we hire new people at work so that I'm less understaffed. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, just wait, just wait until finals are over. You know, it's like, ah. Uh, I can't I wait to be out of the quarter system. I can't <laughs> wait. The quarter system was like cute and fun when I was a freshman. And now that I'm a senior, it's soul crushing. Yeah. When I was, I was like, I love how much learning I'm getting done. I love how many classes I get to take. And now I'm like, I would like not to take a test every single week, please. Yeah. I would like to have days to like uh, revamp before going into final season. Cause it's like midterms, finals, like, and people that just that have never t- been in the quarter system, it's 10 weeks. Your midterms are on a week five and then you have finals week end just like do some like mental math about and then often often you have a prod you often you have two projects yeah that's the other thing is like you have a final paper and a final and you have four weeks (laughs) yeah I would say pretty often there's like an intro project and then like your midterm and then maybe like a little presentation you have to do and then a final paper and a project it's it's a lot Emery it's week nine it's week nine you're kidding me I'm I think it's week nine are you on Monday it's week nine (laughs) <laughs> oh my god so no one will be seeing me next week <laughs> i cannot believe Zen Buddhism it goes by so fast like it was week three and i was like there's no way this quarter is going to be over it was week one and i was on a plane to denver like that was crazy that feels like i feel like you came back from denver like two weeks ago what my final paper for Zen Buddhism is due a lot sooner than I thought it was. <laughs> it's due on December 1st. Uh-oh. <laughs> I know. I, I was right before this, I was working on a final project. <laughs> yeah. But I should actually say to anyone listening, especially if you're a UCSD student, Zen Buddhism has truly been one of like the most fun classes I've taken. Um, I've really enjoyed, I've never taken a religious studies class before. So I would imagine that it's probably like a similar feeling that one would get with like any religious studies class that you're interested in I just have a background in in Buddhism and um however there are a lot of people in that big ass lecture hall that do not wear their masks oh that's so painful I sat next to him with this one guy he just kept pulling his mask down and then pulling it back up and pulling it down and I literally turned to him and I go bro just put your just keep your mask on like no I don't want to wear this either but you know what I don't want is to get everyone around me sick like dude you know I'm very thankful that the one like um I have one I have two in-person lectures and one of them the professor is like very clear she's like it's anthropology of health Mm -hmm. so she's like this is what a mask is this is what a mask isn't Mm -hmm. no bandanas in here and also wear it the whole time and then I have another lecture where the professor just takes his mask off so like two sides of a coin yeah two sides of a coin for sure Let's dive into the awesome field school that you got to do this summer. And I think people have heard the term field school thrown around on here. It's kind of like 
student's first introduction to excavation. So you're really learning along the way, but you also are getting complete hands-on experience, but it is definitely like a learning endeavor, but something that I know I found really cool that Emery enjoyed as well as you get to meet people from all over the country, potentially all over the world and make friends with other students. So yeah, they did their field school in Pompeii in July. It was this summer, correct? Yeah, this is summer. This summer. And it was called Archaeo Spain um, and the Ar Archaeology of Death at Pompeii. So um, maybe should we start with like your first day on getting yeah. there? Like traveling experience? How was it? Travel experience was stressful as international travel is. Mm -hmm. Never doing that again alone. Ever, 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 ever. No, not doing it. Um, uh, it was a very jarring experience um, to be suddenly in a different country with about 12 other people who I've never talked to before. Uh, speaking, everyone spoke a language, like everyone in the program spoke English, it was taught in English. So thankfully, we all had a language in common, but nobody spoke Italian. And we were all in a language, <laughs> we were all in a country, and we were not in like a big city. So, like in big cities, oh. people spoke English, but we were in like a little out of no, like out of the, the way place, and like almost no one spoke English. Um, and <laughs> our first day, we were wandering around this town, and it was Sunday, and everywhere's closed on Sunday in Italy um and also it was like in the time and also they have their um their their their, their siesta time so it's mm -hmm. the time after lunch and before dinner where all the shops are closed yeah and so it was like it was like both no one's open because it's sunday and no one's open because it's just the time of day where they're closed and we were like wandering around trying to find somewhere to eat because none of us had eaten like since that morning at the airport yeah. and we were all like massively jet lagged and we were all like we don't want to get lost uh and we eventually found a sweet lady who opened her her restaurant up and fed us pasta and then turned out that was actually the place that we would eat all of our meals at um because we had like part of part of like our our uh our, our fees were like to like buy us ourselves meals and the place we we had like a standing reservation at this one restaurant every night and it happened to be the place that we stumbled into they included like the fee the food fees like in the they had that's yeah. so smart of them that's so yeah. like transparency and like telling the students to be prepared you know what I mean it's like all about preparedness I actually really like that it's a great model for field schools uh, this feels in no way informed by your own personal experiences oh it was 100 <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, uh, everything was covered except for airfare so to be fair it wasn't that they lied they just said that they would provide three meals a day and the issue is in my american mind that's breakfast lunch and dinner in spain that's breakfast first lunch and second lunch so they didn't lie. They said they provided three meals. They didn't lie. They provided three meals. So I'm not like, but none of us knew that they wouldn't be providing us dinner. So we were all like a little strapped. <laughs> there were several nights that I ate a granola bar for dinner because I didn't budget enough money to bring to Spain. And like, don't get me wrong. It's not that like I couldn't have gone and spent more money. It was just like tonight I'm going to eat a granola bar. So tomorrow I can like drink some sangria. Yeah, it's like tonight I'm going to eat a granola bar, so tomorrow we can have a big party, yeah. Yeah, um, that was the other thing, was that we were all over 18, because that's how old you have to be to drink in Spain, but you are not allowed to have alcohol, like, in the, um, like, dormitory, like, the- Oh, we were, we, we were allowed. We were staying. I know, but we all thought it was ridiculous, because we're all full-grown adults, and none of us, <laughs> and none of us had, like, any intention of getting, like, drunk in the residence we just like wanted to have some wine or I, oh we want to have beer with our pizza we got pizza one night we want to have beer so we played cards and we, we strategically covered all of the security cameras in the hostel and like poured our beer into like plastic cups so that we could drink it but it was like we, between the two between like five of us we spent like two big things like it wasn't like we were drinking to get drunk and we were just drinking to savor I think that's another thing that I actually enjoy about going to Europe is that they drink to savor and I'm definitely like that for example like when I'm in Spain I love you know savoring a glass of wine they yeah they served us a lot of we, we we had a lot of alcohol uh I mean like uh they served us red wine with our dinner every yeah. single night 
Um, we did uh, go on a beach trip to Sorrento one day. Um, and <laughs> somebody did get smashed, like fully drunk, day drunk. Um, and then we had to drag them around the streets of Sorrento until they sobered up. So that was fun. How was Sorrento? Was the beach pretty? It was stunning. I was like, I don't really want to go because like, I like, I live by the beach. Why would I take a two hour train ride to go to the beach when I live by the beach? But I was like, everyone's going and I don't want to be left behind by myself in this like kind of sad renovated church that we were staying in. (laughs) So um, we went and uh, it was the most beautiful beach I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm talking like crystal clear water. I'm talking like like the sand was like thicker than sand it wasn't like the fine stuff that clings out everywhere yeah that we have here it was the perfect temperature it was it was um i was like blown away by how and there was a perfect view of mount vesuvius right there it was it was amazing it was just amazing so what I'm hearing is like lab trip to Italy beach. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That is what you're hearing. After we go to Alaska to visit Megan. Yes, Megan, we're coming to visit you in Alaska. Yes, we'll go to Alaska. I would love to go to Alaska. Also, this is like another shout out to Megan because she listens to every single podcast episode. She wrote me the sweetest review on iTunes and it 100% made me cry. It was so cute. Oh, shout out to Megan. Yeah, shout out to Megan. She's a day one supporter of the podcast. Um, So you were excavating... Skeletal remains. Surprise, surprise. Emery's interested in bones too. It's almost like that's why we're in the same lab group. Um, yeah, almost like we both gravitated towards bioarchaeology for some reason. Yeah. So what? You guys ha- found something really cool. Like I feel like lots of field schools are kind of just more a little straightforward. Like you're excavating something that you kind of already known is you know is there, but like this was a super groundbreaking discovery. Yeah. So. We were uh, we were uh, excavating um, the Porta Sarno necropolis, and it's uh, I think the least excavated uh, so far of Pompeii's necropolis necropoli. Uh, and uh, there was they were like this is a very interesting shaped building. They're like we've never seen a building with this shape. Like we haven't seen a structure with this shape before. And so we were excavating and it was basically like a rectangle. And then like in the upper right-hand corner of the rectangle was um, like like a little cubby, like a completely sealed in, very, very coffin-esque sort of shape. Um, and we were all like, that's kind of like the right dimensions if you wanted to put a human body in there. Yeah. And every like the head of the program was like, no, Pompeians, they don't bury, they don't bury their dead. Romans don't like they don't bury their dead they only burn their dead and we were like okay at but what it's- point in time because the Romans that I was digging up sure did bury their dead sorry it was it was it was it was specifically Pompeii in okay, its I, was gonna, I don't know anything about Romans generally yeah it was it was specifically Pompeii didn't bury their adult dead they buried oh. some of their child dead um, in like but- oh yeah in the vases I remember yeah and so we were digging in the structure and uh, we got to the floor of the structure and there was still the completely sealed off like coffin structure but when we got to the floor, we were like, we found a funerary urn and we found a Stella with like an inscription on it. And then uh, we found like um, broken libation bottles and it was like all the signs of like grave markers, which makes sense because yeah. it's a necropolis. And pretty well preserved, I'm assuming. Very well preserved. I mean, like we were uncovering like plaster that was still intact. And not only that, this plaster like was still had its original coloring. We, ash must have just trapped it in there's no bacteria exactly and like we exposed it and it was really sad because we would expose it and then like we would come back the next day and it totally faded but like it was this bright like rich you know red it was gorgeous yeah that's cool. um and then um we discovered the shape of it and the the front of it the inscription was like completely blocked into like like earth had grown over it and like they were like like the first week was just removing trees basically Mm -hmm. um and so like it was very interesting because we went from chopping down trees above it to like taking the dirt out above it to like digging through the ash bolt like above it um and the front of it was still like completely encased in dirt and like there was like a tree growing on it and they managed to like scrape the tree away pull the tree away and they found the inscription of who was theoretically here 
And it was somebody we already knew about. It was a guy named Marcus Venerius Secundio, um, who was um, a libertus. He was a free, he was a Greek slave who was an actor and who was so good at it that they freed him. And he became a very rich man and put on a lot of like theater. He, he was um, like an, an administrator of the temple of Venus in Pompeii and put on a lot of theater. He paid for like multiple people to go see free concerts, which is like a big, exciting thing. Um, anyway, so we were getting so excited because we, we've been finding like some bones here and there as one does at Pompeii. I mentioned that earlier that like we've been finding some bones, but we were all like, what's in this, this thing? We have to open it up. Oh, we'll get somebody in in like two days because we need like an official rest restoration expert to come. Yeah. Make if you're going to be destroying ancient 2000 year old structures, you have to some, an expert do that, right? Yeah, and particularly, like, I know sometimes there's, like, governmental things, because if you find a really rare burial, they just want to make sure that everything's done, like, by by the book. Exactly. So we were, like, what we've discovered is already crazy cool, because we already found, like, the gravesite of this really, somebody who we already knew was important. Mm -hmm. um, that never and happens, by the way. Like, it just, that, that never happens. Like, that never happens, never right? happens. Like, every, it was almost every single day we were finding something really cool. Um, like a funerary urn or a Stella yeah. or like a glass vial like we were finding like we're bones every day we were finding something very interesting and our everyone working on the project was like this like we're telling all of the students like this doesn't happen don't yeah. get used to this like this never happens and we were like we know we know but this is so cool um, and they were like so clear to emphasize for us like this is not like the norm, like you don't, like you escape for months and you don't find anything. We were like, we yeah. don't. So that's but why it's like important for people to understand, but it's like when you then, then the work you put in is like, oh, it pays off when you do find something. I know, like you, like people will spend years on an archaeology site and find nothing but dirt. And then like one day they find like a bone and they're like, oh my God. Um, and uh, we, we, uh, we, we were, they were saying like in two days, the restoration expert's going to come and she's going to bust it all open and we're going to take a look inside. And then they were like, ah, oh, she's been delayed. She's going to come next week. And we were like, and we were like creeping closer and closer to the end of like, when we all have to go home and we're like, no, please, please bring her in. And they were like, she's going to be here on this day. And they're like, oh, sorry. She's going to, she's going to be here two days later. And we were like, please, please, please. And like three days before we, the program was over, they, they brought her in, they opened it up. And inside was the most magnificent skeleton of this uh, like 60 year old man still has an intact ear, still has his scalp. I didn't know he's, that. Yeah. He's still got an intact ear. He's got his, it's all withered up, right? Of course, but like. Yeah. Uh, like <laughs> he's, almost. He's, he's alive in there. Um, okay. No, and uh, like they're still trying to figure out like was he purposely mummified or was this like just a byproduct of like accidents like mm -hmm. and uh so he's got his whole skeleton he's got his hair is still on there he's got his ear it's he's fully clothed it's so cool it's so cool and what was do you did your jaw just did you guys actually to watch as they broke it open i i was not there yeah. when they broke it open i was so angry i was so angry i wasn't there um but we were getting like live tweeted basically oh great and like um they were like no taking pictures like the second like oh, they, course, they gave yeah. us they gave us like when we when we first got to the site they gave us all like you can take pictures of you working but make sure you don't have anything distinct in the photos and also like don't share like pictures of this on on anything and we were like yeah yeah of course you know very standard and then when we started discovering interesting things they were like don't take pictures don't don't want to see your phone out keep it in your pocket yeah and we were like but we were getting like a, we had a group chat and they would like we had a group chat with the administrators and a group chat without the administrators and it's so like in the group chat without the administrators they would like they were sending um like pictures of what we were finding and they were like oh my god guys this is so cool and all of us at the lab were like no 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 tell we need it we want to be there yeah but we were just honestly excited we were just excited that like it was being opened yeah um, for sure that's really exciting it was it was crazy and then that night um that it was opened um our our site our the guy the site supervisor the guy running the whole project was kind of a pill but that night he was in his best mood he was the entire program um we played we are the champions on <laughs> on the tvs in the restaurant we like, should have done times. that when Curran got tenure 
we should have we should have that would have been great um but they played it like three times it was it was it was just an amazing experience we all went and got drinks it was so much fun that's great I'm so glad you got to have that experience and on the note of tweeting so I got retweeted by Kathy Reichs and I like lost it I thought it was the coolest thing ever and then maybe like a a couple days or weeks later Emery's like I didn't want to steal your thunder and I think this just says like how much of an icon you are because you knew I was so excited you were like Kathy Reichs retweeted my project too and so Kathy thinks we're cool Kathy thinks we're cool I know I'm salty because USC wrote because there's a USC student there and they wrote about their student going but UCSB doesn't care about their student going UCSB doesn't care about much we do no UCSB cares about us putting money into our bark accounts yeah yeah I think there'll be like a podcast like revealing the real tea when I graduate yes that sounds good I have some things I'd like to talk about. Well, we all, we will all wait with bated breath. Well, I know. I yeah, already. I think there'll also be an at some point um, an episode about the grad school process because that's that'd be a great idea. It's been interesting, and I want to like I won't like I'll you know obviously keep my own um, safety you know paramount, so I won't like name names or anything, but just like some of the general like things I've taken from like this process because it's you know, I've, learned, I've learned a lot about how to identify toxic environments and it's really sad that there are so many out there it really is sad but you know it's just like being aware of being aware of your worth honestly like being aware of your originality and people shouldn't try and like shape you into like little mini thems you know you should yeah. your research should be unique that's the whole point you don't want to just do exactly what someone else is doing yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I think that like the knowing your worth thing is so, so important. And it's something like I really need to work on like knowing for myself too. And I think we could all kind of work on knowing that like we are more valuable. Like, okay, so somebody I met in this program, still friends with, um, and she texted me like a few weeks back being like, I'm thinking about joining this program. And it was basically like a six month program to go to South America. They pay for your food. And they pay for your housing, but that's it. They don't pay you any money. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like thinking about going because she was like, it'd be a great experience, but like, I don't know. The fact that they don't pay me isn't great, but also like, I don't really love South American archaeology, but like, man, that experience would be great. And I was like, girl, you got to know your worth. Yeah. Like, I bet you in six months can find a better program that will pay you in something you're interested in. I was going to say, and so like in an area of the world that you actually want to do research in, um, because you know experience is good but there are a lot of experiences like yeah and it's like you're more valuable than this thing that won't pay you for your time you're more valuable than that yeah really it's really it's such an imperative lesson and you know I think we're really lucky that that's something that Dr. Curran um you know says all the time like she knows what we're worth as students she speaks up for us but then also like making sure that when we're looking into our futures we you know, prioritize like what, what, we're worth, what we're worth. I would honestly not even be going to grad school if it wasn't for Kieran. Like if she hadn't given me these experiences yeah. and if she hadn't told me that I was like worth going to grad school for. Yeah. Cause I was like, I was like, I'm thinking about going to grad school. And she's like, you'll get in. And I was like, well, I don't even know if I'm going to apply it. She's like, you're, you're smart enough. You'll get in. Yeah. And I was like, that's like what really helped, you know, make me realize I'm I am good enough to go into this field and like her reviewing our CVs and her telling us like this is what you put in your CV this is how you dress it up to look nice makes me feel like what I I like as every time I sit down to write my CV or my personal statement I'm like I get so full of imposter syndrome like I haven't done anything interesting like it's not it's not important enough and and I think having like you guys around and having her like tell me and tell others like that like we are smart enough to do this and like what we did was important and here's how you there's how you frame it for yourself and for others that this was important has yeah. been such an important experience for me yeah and we know we all have each other's backs and like experiences and like the stuff that I've been going through with grad school like I've been able to share with all of you and I think 
and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, because, you know, I have the podcast and like, I'm out like a bit more like public in the anthropology community. I'm sure it must be like reassuring for you all to see that. I don't know what I'm doing. Like either, like we all, yeah, we're all working and we're all dealing with the same. There either isn't funding, they aren't taking students or they don't even want to consider our application. I know. (laughs) Uh, No, not pointed at all, but I've gotten back so many emails from professors being like, we don't have the funding to take a grad student right now. I can't take a grad student right now. I have too many grad students. Like it's, it's a brutal process. And I, I appreciate you talking about how you don't know what you're doing, because I think that, that there's an illusion out there that people know what they're doing. And it, it it makes you feel like you're the only one who doesn't. And I like, I have been so comforted by so many professors I like the first day of all my humanities classes are kind of professors being like, please join the major, please, God, we need funding. And then also them talking about their own personal like journeys. And everyone was like, I started off as a bioengineer for 12 years. And then I said, I hate this. And now I study Greek. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I love all these stories about professors who are like, I'm a tenured professor with a two PhDs. And you know what I did for three for, you know, I was a coding guy. Yeah. And I'm like, you wow you took a left field my man so I'm like you know at least like we're not alone in like absolutely feeling like nothing we're doing nothing good you know yeah we're so lucky and I'm honestly like constantly thankful for our little our little lab group yeah and um next quarter we need to have lab game nights like we were talking about but we were all just too busy this quarter. So we're going we to have all too busy. And I'm, I'm so excited because I'm graduating this quarter. So oh gosh, yeah, I meant to highlight that. That's so exciting. And I'm graduating this quarter. I'm graduating two quarters early. Um, and uh, so I cannot wait to be able to put like twice as much time into lab stuff as I am now. Yeah. I'm like, the second I graduate, it's going to be me in that lab. Like I'm going to be working and I'm going to be at that lab. It's going to be great. We got a 3D printer. I know I want to I want to I'm so I have so many ideas I'm so excited so she's printed like a little hyoid and then the other day like she got more of like the spoolie plastic stuff that like creates the object and um she like was programming it and I'm like oh Curran what are you making like another bone she goes no I'm making a miniature llama I love love (laughs) and she literally just made a two inch llama like for (laughs) it took like 30 minutes that is everything I've dreamed of and more. Yeah. Kieran is a riot and a half. She's she's the best. Great. Uh, and I love that Cassie and Kashi get along. Yes, I love that too. Um, because my dog is petrified of any other dog. So like it's not like she was ever gonna get along with Daisy and Cassie just really doesn't like me. Um, yeah Cassie well Cassie can smell Daisy's fear and she says finally because I think Cassie has this complex because she's a small dog right and so I I think she has this complex of like wanting to be like a big dog but the second any big dog gets in her face she suddenly realizes she's outclassed Mm -hmm. so I think that when she interacts with the dog who's scared of her she says I can beat this dog up and I can prove to the world that I'm powerful yeah and I think Daisy like the smell of Daisy's fear Cassie's like aha yeah yeah Daisy's like oh my god mom get me away get me away from this (laughs) yeah that's how she is with every dog she's like mom she just like she sees a dog like on the other side of the street or like down the road she just like looks at me and I'm like I will protect you (laughs) I will keep using Cassie is like the opposite she's like hold me back like Cassie sees another dog and she is like up on her hind legs crying screaming and I'm like tugging on her like telling her like no don't leave it and then like turning her around and picking her up like get I'm like covering her eyes so she can't (laughs) that's my favorite thing that you do is you cover Cassie's eyes because if she can't see she calms down a little bit I'm just like trying to break her I'm trying to break her attention trying to get her away and then reward her when her attention is diverted but man she's like hold me back (laughs) I will get him hold my hoops exactly exactly yeah well thank you so much for talking with me on the podcast today Emery thank you for having me on